We'll begin with prayer then. Eternal Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the faithful work that Zechariah and your other prophets have done, delivering faithfully your messages to us, to all mankind. We especially appreciate the fact that the promises that they have given that have been fulfilled show us that you are the creator and sustainer of the universe and that you are speaking to us and that you have gloriously delivered us from sin, bondage to sin and death. We thank you for this and we ask that you would help us to appreciate and understand these prophecies in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Zechariah, Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. That is one of the titles that Zechariah gives to the Messiah. The name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Zechariah was also concerned with rebuilding the temple, but his visions of the future go far beyond those of Haggai. Zechariah is the most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. The, ma the major prophets are quoted more often, but he's the most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. Zechariah, a priest, wrote the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was born in Babylon, but his father returned to Judah with his family in 536 BC, following the leadership of Zerubbabel, the man who was appointed governor of Jerusalem. It's interesting that uh, Zechariah and Daniel are just the reverse of one another. But Zechariah was born in Babylon and he came to Jerusalem but Daniel was just the other way around. He was born in Israel, but he went, he was taken into captivity into Babylon. So the two prophets are just the reverse. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This dates to October to November of 520 BC. So the first chapters of the book of Zechariah are in 521 BC. They were written in 520 BC. The book of Zechariah offers an expansive prophetic view of the future. Along with the prophet Haggai, he was instrumental in inspiring his fellow Jews to rebuild the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. The first eight chapters of Zechariah have to do with that work. And the remaining six chapters look to the future. So there's a gap in there between the first eight chapters and the remaining six. Some scholars believe these chapters were written 30 years later. The latter chapters were written quite a few years later than the first chapters. The book as a whole outlines God's program for his people during the times of the Gentiles that we read about in Luke 21 in the Olivet Discourse. Preparing them for their deliverance through the coming Messiah. Though Zechariah wrote about the temple construction that was happening in his day, his eyes were fixed on the future restoration of Jerusalem and the coming Messiah. So he wasn't just dealing with, with a temple that was being constructed in his day. He was dealing with the prophecies about the future coming of the Messiah. As far as the itinerary, the outline of the book of Zechariah, chapters one through six, the early chapters of the book, give us Zion's sanctuary, the temple is being rebuilt. And we have eight visions that came to, to Zechariah. Then in the second part of the book, 
uh, chapters 7 through 8, we read of Zion's services. Four messages were given to Zechariah. And then finally, in chapters 9 through 14, dealing very much with the future, we read about Zion's Savior. And two burdens or, or oracles are given to Zechariah in those chapters. The Gospel, no minor prophet book deals more of the scarlet, reveals more of the scarlet thread of redemption than Zechariah. Three of the eight rapid fire visions to the Lord, the Lord gave the prophet appointed, pointed either to the first coming of the Messiah, called the branch in Zechariah 3.8, or to Christ's end times reign. So much of the book deals with the future, Christ's first coming and his second coming. In Matthew 23.35, Jesus refers to the murder of Zechariah at the temple. Some think that this is Zechariah the prophet, but I think it's better to equate Matthew's Zechariah to a different person, the Zechariah found in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 through 22. So I think that's the Zechariah that, that Jesus was talking about because he's talking about the, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And that would uh, coincide with the the Jewish division of the Old Testament into the law and the prophets and the writings. So um, Abel is the first person who is murdered in the law and Zechariah, the Zechariah that Jesus is talking about is the last one to be murdered in the, in the writings. So I think that was the point that, that Jesus was making there. The tie-in to the prophet Zechariah comes in verses 38 through 39. Jesus lamented the scribes and Pharisees' failure to recognize not only him, but also the prophets of God sent before him. He said, your house is left you desolate. You shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. With those words, Jesus referred to when he would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Immediately following that prophecy is a description of Christ's second coming in verse 10 of chapter 9. In the end, the Messiah will quell all militant warlike action around the world and bring peace. Now, Zechariah didn't know when either of these events would occur, but the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey would take place 500 years after his time, or that the Messiah's people would still be waiting for his second coming 2,000 years or so after that. Both comings were prophetically foreshortened, being compressed into these two consecutive verses. And you will find that often in the Old Testament prophets, that they jump back and forth very quickly from one verse talking about the first coming, another verse talking about the second coming, another verse talking about the first coming again. So I'll talk more about that, uh, about that factor later. Zechariah ministered as a post-exilic prophet, preaching after the Jews returned from exile into Babylon, uh, beginning in 536 BC. After overcoming opposition, the people completed the temple in March of 516 BC. Zechariah, like the prophet Haggai, was urging the Jews to, to finish the temple because they had let it, this uh, rebuilding lapse and, they, and these prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, were encouraging them to, to finish the work rebuilding the temple. 
Zechariah was a member of the Great Synagogue, a group of priests and leaders who collected and preserved the canon of revealed scripture. So Zechariah was, was involved with preserving the scriptures of the Old Testament for us. He was a contemporary not only of Haggai the prophet, but also of Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. There's a chart showing you uh, the place of Zechariah in history. Gives you the rulers and prophets of Zechariah's time. Down at the bottom of the chart there, you see that Daniel in the 70 year Jewish captivity in Babylon had just come to an end. And Zerubbabel had been appointed as governor by the Persians over Jerusalem. And the, the temple was begun to be rebuilt, but then it lapsed, it was let lie idle for a while. But through the work of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the temple, the construction of the temple was restarted and the temple was finished. You can see that Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries, but the uh, prophetic ministry of Zechariah uh, extended much longer than that of Haggai. And all of this is in the Persian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire. And you can see at the top there that uh, the events of the book of Esther took place shortly after Zechariah and Haggai. What can we learn from the book of Zechariah? Well, first we learn that faith cancels out fear. Henry Ward Beecher, he was a, a 19th century clergyman. He said, every tomorrow has two handles. We can take hold of it with the handle of anxiety or the handle of faith. The purpose of anxiety and discomfort is to draw you closer to God and fear and faith are mutually exclusive. So grab hold of faith and find out what God has in store for you. Secondly, let God rebuke Satan. As Zechariah recorded, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. God was the one who defeated Satan at the cross and God is the one who gives us victory over him today. Instead of trying to talk to Satan, talk to God about him and let Jesus answer the door when Satan comes knocking. I referred to James 4, 7 there, which says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And also in Jude 9, we read, but when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, uh, was disputing about the uh, body of Moses, he did not present, presume to promote, to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So that is certainly what we should do. If we want to, if we are concerned about the activities of Satan, talk to God about them and he will do the rebuking. Don't despise the day of small things. Be faithful in the smallest details of life at home, at work and with friends, family and complete strangers. Even if God is the only one who notices your efforts, that's all that really matters. He honors those who honor him and are faithful in everyday matters. So let's get into the text of Zechariah now and the first six chapters, Zion's Sanctuary. 
Here are eight visions about Israel's future among the nations and their spiritual restoration by God. The first vision, the angelic horseman, represents God's providential activity among the nations to return his people to Jerusalem so they can build their temple. This angelic horseman is among the myrtle trees. The myrtle, better known as the laurel, a hardy evergreen, difficult to uproot, that grows low and strong. It's an emblem of Israel. Like the myrtle, Israel would not be easily removed from their land. And God promised to meet them there. I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, house shall be built in it. Just as an aside, uh, Esther, Queen Esther. Uh, the, the name Esther was a name that was given to her by the Persians. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Hadassah is the feminine form of the word Hadass, which means myrtle. So Hadassah means myrtle. The second vision, the four horns and the four craftsmen, symbolizes the four world powers under whose dominion Israel was to come. Horns are symbolic of power and pride. These are the four world powers that appeared in Daniel's visions, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. You recall from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter two, the, the metallic image, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. This, this is a prophecy about those same four kingdoms, those same four empires. And remember that in the time of Daniel and in the time of Zechariah, uh, two of these four were yet in the future. Uh, Daniel and, and Zechariah lived uh, in the time of the Persian Empire but Greece and Rome were still yet in the future. And that's it. these were fulfilled precisely. These prophecies were fulfilled precisely as, as Daniel and as Zechariah indicated. The craftsmen were the people and ways by which God would bring down each of those powers because of their treatment of Israel. The vision of the man and the measuring rod in chapter two illustrates God surveying the land for the remnant to re-inhabit. This vision was symbolic of how God would build Jerusalem, the apple of his eye, is the, the wording that he uses in, in chapter two, in the future. The city would spread well beyond its walls because of God's favor to it. From about a dozen acres in David's day, to more than 45 square miles today, Jerusalem is still in that process of growth. The next vision that, that Zechariah had, Joshua the high priest, is a vision of Christ in the temple interceding for Israel so that Satan would not destroy her. Joshua was Jerusalem's spiritual leader at the time. In this vision, he's dressed in dirty rags and standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan stood to his right, accusing him and the nation as a whole. 
But the Lord rebuked Satan, cleaned up Joshua, and told Joshua he was a symbol of the Messiah to come. My servant, the branch, is the wording that Zechariah uses, the offshoot of David's line. Next is the vision of the lampstand and olive trees. Chapter 4 declares that the renewed light of Israel among the nations is dependent on the oil of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most famous of these visions is menorah, represented the temple that the priest had to fill with olive oil daily to keep it burning. What Zechariah saw was an automated menorah, continuously supplied with oil directly from the trees, which represented Jeroboam and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and God wanted Zechariah to tell Zerubbabel that the temple would be rebuilt not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. What Israel couldn't do in their own strength, God would accomplish as a move of his spirit. Next, the vision of the flying scroll indicates that the judgment of God's word would fall upon the Jews because they broke his commandments. This billboard-sized scroll, 15 by 30 feet, the measurement of the holy place in the temple, had writing on both sides, the curse that goes over the face of the whole earth. Specifically, thieves and perjurers, liars, would feel God's wrath as judgment for failing to keep God's standard as given in the word of God. The woman in the ephah, an ephah is something like a, a bushel basket, it portrays the purging away of Israel's idolatry by her captivity in Babylon, the seat of idolatry. Clear back from the book of Genesis and the Tower of Babel. Babylon becomes uh, a symbol of the, of the wicked ways of man apart from God. The woman's name was wickedness, a symbol of sin, and she was carried off by two winged women who represented the cleansing work of God's spirit to Shinar, that is Babylon. We are told clear back in, in the book of Genesis that Shinar is, is Babylon, is Babel, Babylon. The meaning was that Israel was to leave behind all that they had learned in Babylon. All of those wicked practices, some of which threatened to make a comeback in Jerusalem. So they, when the, while the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon, they had picked up many of Babylon's ways. And God wanted to purge them, purge them of those ways. Finally, the four chariots and horses, chapter 6, are the providential agents of God who oversee the events of the nations to assure Israel's return to their land and reconstruction of the temple. These are not the four horsemen of the apocalypse from Revelation 6, but God's angelic agents surrounding and protecting Israel in all directions. There are four of them corresponding to the four cardinal directions. God then told Zechariah to take up a collection from the exiles to build the temple. Their investment was possible because God had secured their safety from the nations around them. And this shall come to pass 
if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The heart of Israel is Jerusalem, and the heart of Jerusalem is the temple of God. Zechariah's message for the return remnant was fourfold with regard to the spiritual center of the people. Now we go to chapter 7 and 8, Zion's services. First, I, I will give you a, an overview of what the four messages are that uh, Zechariah delivered, and then I'll go into some detail about the, the context, the events surrounding the delivering of these messages. First, he spoke about out against the worldly ritual practiced in it, that is, against pure formalism in serving God. That's not what God wants. That's not what we should want. It's just religious formalism. He then reminded them of the wide retribution or judgment of God that came on Israel because they would not heed the former prophets. They were scattered by God among the nations. The third message concerned the worldwide restoration of Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in Jerusalem. And there will be a worldwide religion. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. We have never seen in the past, or do we see today, uh, all of the nations, all the peoples of the world coming to seek the Lord. That's, this is something that will happen yet in the future in the Millennial Kingdom. A few years later, and I, I mentioned that many scholars feel that it was several years later, perhaps many is 30 years later, when we see these prophecies of, of chapter 7 and 8 recorded. A few years later, Zechariah addressed a delegation that had come down from the northern part of Israel to meet with the temple priests in Jerusalem. They had been fasting and mourning once a year to mark Israel's exile and the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. They wanted to know if they should keep doing so. But God had a question for them. During those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? It seemed that God, ungodly selfishness, not godly sorrow, caused their tears. Part of the reason Israel had been sent into exile centered on this distinction. God doesn't want empty religious observances. He wants people who live out the heart of the law justice and mercy and compassion for each other. Instead of commemorating a disaster their sin had brought on them, how much better would it be to listen to and obey God's word? Maybe it wasn't the direct yes or no the delegation had been looking for, but God wanted to know if the people were willing to change. He said, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. He was committed to them. Would they be committed to him? This last section is highly messianic, chapters 9 through 14. It contains two burdens or oracles. 
one about the rejection of the Messiah and one about the reign of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophets often received their visions in one big screenshot. The currently expanding gap between Jesus' first coming and his second wasn't apparent to them. Their perspective was a lot like looking at a mountain range from a distance. Two peaks, one behind the other, appear to be a single peak. As you fly over it, it becomes apparent that there is a valley between the two peaks. And that's much like what happened with the Old Testament prophets. There's a, an illustration that shows this principle, perspective of the prophets. From the perspective of the prophet, the, the, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, but to the prophet, they look just like one. The prophet was not aware of the distance, the, the time gap between these two fulfillments. And that is why that you will find that Zechariah and the other Old Testament prophets uh, jump back and forth so easily between the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. Because to them, it all just looked like one thing. One of the most frequently cited passages in the Bible is in this section, the prediction of the triumphal entry of Christ in Jerusalem on what came to be known as Palm Sunday, just before his crucifixion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. That's uh, Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9. And all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all refer to this fulfilled prophecy in their gospels. The very next verse, in verse 10 of chapter 9, jumps ahead to the time when Jesus will stop a war against Israel and bring peace to the nations. That, of course, did not happen immediately after his first coming. That is yet to be fulfilled in the future. Zechariah then spoke of the blessings God had in store for a reunified Israel in the Messianic kingdom, promises of rain and green fields, but also of deliverance from bad leadership and the restoration of Israel's pride in belonging to God. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Zechariah 10.6 this is a prophecy about the houses of, of Judah in the, the southern kingdom and the house of Joseph, which is often used as a shorthand way to refer to the northern kingdom. Not all of the northern kingdom is of the tribe of Joseph, but Joseph is, is the representative of that northern kingdom. So the time will come when Judah and, and the northern kingdom, Israel, will be reunited. But first, the Messiah was rejected and became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slain for those who trafficked in the sheep. Indeed, he would be betrayed for 30 shekels of silver. 11 and 13 in your 
familiar with that, with the story of the 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah told the people to settle up with him for his service. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. The exact wages Judas was later paid for betraying Jesus. According to Exodus 21:32, 30 pieces of silver was the price for a slave that had been gored by an ox. That's how little the people thought of Zechariah and how little Judas thought of Jesus. God told Zechariah to throw the 30 pieces of silver to the potter, in other words, to the, to the poor box at the temple. Judas, of course, threw his blood money on the floor in the temple complex, and the Jewish leaders purchased a barren field with it called a keldama, or field of blood. Judas later hanged himself there. All of these things pointed to Jesus' first coming. His rejection by his people, compounded by betrayal and shame. That's chapters 9 through 11. Now we go to the final chapters of the book of Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14. Jesus' second oracle brings Jesus' second coming into view. God promised that he would punish all the nations who had relished their roles as punishers of Judah and Israel. God brought these nations as a punishment, as a judgment upon Israel, but he punished them, he will punish them for relishing their role so much. Though Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome either had or would attack and subjugate the Jews, God described a future battle when all the earth nations would rise against Israel something we know as the Battle of Armageddon. Remember once again, uh, when I said they either had or would attack and subjugate the Jews, because in the time of Zechariah, uh, Greece and Rome were still yet in the future. On that day, meaning on that day of this, this battle, God will protect and avenge his people. I will strike every horse with confusion and his rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and, I, and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. When God defends his people, he will also pour out his spirit upon them. At that point, they will have the eye-opening and heart-wrenching experience of recognizing Jesus as their Messiah and that they failed to acknowledge him the first time he came to them. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Ancient Jews believed this prophecy referred to the suffering of the coming Messiah. In the original Hebrew text, there are two untranslated letters next to me, Aleph and Tav. They are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, what the Greeks would call Alpha and Omega, 
or in English, the beginning and the end. It's a remarkable fingerprint of the Holy Spirit, an almost hidden prediction of Jesus that matches one of his most powerful self-descriptions. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I must point out that God declared that they pierced me. He said that they pierced me, affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. God didn't just say they pierced him. He said they pierced me. So Jesus Christ is God. After the people of Israel grieve for their ultimate failure, God will provide them with his ultimate restoration. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This fountain was opened at the cross, but its flow of cleansing blood will only be widely accepted among God's people Israel in the last days. It's one of those near far moments in the prophecy. The last chapter of Zechariah, chapter 14, speaks of that final battle again, this time featuring the physical return of Jesus Christ. Behold, a day of the Lord is coming, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. Uh, I want you to notice that in this prophecy, in this verse, in these verses, uh, Zechariah says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. So I, I need to say a few words about the Battle of Armageddon. You all heard many times that, that expression, the, the Battle of Armageddon. Um, that's a bit of a misnomer because Armageddon isn't actually where the battle takes place. Armageddon is where the armies are gathered, where they are assembled. If we look at the statements about this in, the, in Revelation chapter 16, and I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three foul spirits like frogs, where they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So here we're not yet reading about the battle. We're reading about them, the armies being assembled for the battle. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. So the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and so it's rendered as Armageddon from the Hebrew Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. But this is where the armies are assembled. Uh, here's a map of uh, northern Israel, and you can see the, the red dot there Megiddo or Armageddon is at that red dot. 
Megiddo is near the port of Haifa. If you look on the left side there, where there's a, a prominent bump there sticking out into the Mediterranean, that's where Haifa is located. Haifa is the main seaport of Israel. So it makes sense that that's where the armies would be landed and then they would move to Megiddo because in front of Megiddo to the, to the uh, northeast there is this broad flat plain, the, the Valley of Jezreel, it's called in the Old Testament. In New Testament times, it's called the Valley of Esdraelon. There's a, a topographical map. Once again, Megiddo is at the red dot there. And then to the right to the northeast of Megiddo is this plain of Jezreel. The broad flat plain. And according to Revelation 16, this is where the armies will be assembled. This is not where the actual battle takes place, the battle of God Almighty. So we, we see a map here of, there's, you see Haifa on the coast, Megiddo, a little ways inland, about 23 miles or so. And Jerusalem is to the south, about um, 66 and a half miles, I think is the distance between Megiddo and Jerusalem, but the armies will be assembled at Megiddo and then they will move to the south and the actual battle will be fought near Jerusalem. According to the prophet Joel, chapter 3 verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage Israel. The valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of judgment is thought to be the Kidron Valley, just east of Jerusalem. Uh, there's a map showing the old city of Jerusalem to the left there. The blue line is the Kidron Valley, running north and south there. So the Kidron Valley is just east of Jerusalem and then just east of that is the, the Mount of Olives. Incidentally, that, that green line running uh, east and west, that is believed to be the route that Jesus took on his triumphal entry, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. So there's a, a photo of this Kidron Valley. We're looking to the northeast. On your right, you'll see the Mount of Olives. On the lower left, we'll see the slope of Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley is in between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. These are some old photos before there was much development in the Kidron Valley. To your right there you see the Mount of Olives. To the left is the city of Jerusalem, the old city, and the Kidron Valley is in between. This is another one of those old photos down in the Kidron Valley, looking the opposite direction, looking south. And today there is much more development in the Kidron Valley. There's lots of building that has happened over the years. After Jesus lifted off the Mount of Olives in front of his disciples in Acts chapter one, some angels came and asked them why they were staring at the empty sky with gaping mouths. This same Jesus 
will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus returns to defeat his enemies and claim the earth, his touchdown will have an appropriate impact, splitting the Mount of Olives in two. Zechariah skipped the battle details, though, and he went on straight to the kingdom age. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. In short, after the Battle of Armageddon, Christ will set up his messianic kingdom and reign for a thousand years. I'll close with prayer and then we'll open it up for any questions or comments that you may have. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the assurances that you have given us through your prophets and throughout all of your holy scriptures, your inspired scriptures, that we can count on, that we can rely upon, that have been fulfilled and will yet be fulfilled. We thank you for this, these precious promises in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, this is Christy. I'll unmute everyone. We haven't done this before, so we're not sure how it's going to go in terms of um, asking a question. So yeah. uh, I'm going to unmute everyone first. Um, uh, I need to point out that that if you have a well, can you also put their uh, their uh, videos on the screen? So, uh, because uh, it, it will work better if you raise your hand and just talk one at a time and not talk over each other. I don't want to be seen. <laughs> yeah, um, Dana. Yes. I learned today or yesterday um, that I have to go through individually and turn all their videos on. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So it might be a little less cumbersome because we have a big group. There's 23 people participating. Um, okay. Maybe just speak up um, and we'll try to manage it that way. Okay. Right. Say who you are and then ask your question. Or make your comment, either one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Dana, this is Peter. Yes. A question for you on the pictures of the non-developed Kidron Valley. Mm -hmm. Ballpark, when were those pictures taken? Um, I haven't looked into that. I don't know when they were taken. Yeah. They, they were in color. <laughs> I, I know. That's why I was curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. I would, uh, I would assume, like, maybe in the 60s. Okay, and then one last follow-up question. Might be, it might be that they were um, taken before the 67 war, you know, okay. when, when the city of Jerusalem was still divided. Okay, in the and one Park last, last follow-up question. So the armies will be assembled in the Jezreel Valley, but the actual battle will be in the Kidron Valley? That, that is my understanding. Okay, it's just the Kidron Valley is so small. Is what? Small, so small and condensed. 
It is, but the Kidron Valley is about 20 miles long. So it, okay. it extends quite a ways to the north of and south of, of Jerusalem. Okay, got it. Okay, thank you. Hello? Yes, who am I speaking to? This is Patty. Oh, hi, Patty. Dana, is there any way that we can tell when he's talking about the near and far, except for our own discernment of what we know already in the Bible? I, I don't know of any general rule that I can give you. Uh, when we're talking about the, the first coming versus the second coming, with his second coming, we have a lot of details from the New Testament and from history about the fulfillments of those prophecies. But, but other than that, it, it's, fairly, it's fairly clear when we read a verse of scripture, a prophetic scripture, whether it's talking about the near, something that has already been fulfilled or something that has not yet been fulfilled. I mean, any, anything, yeah, right. anything that talks about um, the, the conditions during the Millennial Kingdom or the, the fact of, that Israel will come en masse to salvation, um, those things are yet in the future. They certainly have not been fulfilled in the past or are not being fulfilled now. So it really is a matter of, you know, connecting the dots. Well, as as we saw with the um, the thing about the Battle of Armageddon, this is why it's so important to uh, on any given subject to consider all of the relevant scriptures before we jump to conclusions and not just do it on the basis of one verse of scripture or you know we need to, to, to we need to study our scriptures we need to to read them and become familiar with them. Yeah. I was just wondering because, like, when I was a new Christian, I mean, um, you know, even after that, because I didn't really, I didn't really study the Bible. So the prophets were intimidating because it's like, I have no clue what this is talking about. Yes, it, it is, it is, it can be confusing and it is difficult. But once you understand that, that principle that the prophets move very easily back and forth between near fulfillments and far fulfillments mm -hmm. and and between the first coming and the second coming so I, I could tell a new christian you really have to understand the whole context of scripture to understand some of the prophets yeah right that's correct thank you <coughs> oh, hi, Anyone Dana. else have comment? There's Nancy Mullen. Oh yeah. Hey Dana. Hi. Well, I was just looking at um some of the scriptures in chapter fourteen and looking at like fourteen verse Oh, six and seven. They're talking about on that day, 
There'll be no light. There won't be any cold or frost. It'll be this unique day. There'll be no day or night or evening. The waters will flow from, what is that day that they're talking about? Oh. Which verse are you in, Nancy? Well, it's in 14, like verses six and verses seven and verses eight. They're talking about that day. So that's the day that he makes himself king over the earth then? Mm -hmm. Well, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, it also uses that wording, uh, his feet will stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Okay. So, uh. so that day generally refers to um, the, the time when Christ returns, that day when he returns. Okay. A lot of weird stuff. There is. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And, and just think of this, we, we've had uh, centuries to, to digest this. <laughs> yeah, well. It might it must have been part of coming to Zechariah all at once. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, one other thing is, you were talking about the four um, messages that I was trying to write down and get all the stuff. And then you were talking about oracles. So was that interchangeable with the messages or was there some other? I was trying to distinguish between the, the different sections of Zechariah. So oh. in, in, in chapters one through six, in chapters one through six, there are those eight visions. I got that. And then in chapters seven and eight, there are the four messages that he had. Okay. And then, um, in the, in the last chapters, um, what is that, 9 through 14? Yeah. That's where we have these two various, various translations use different words. Some call them burdens or oh. oracles. Uh, they're, they're divine revelations from God. And the first is about the, is primarily about the first coming, and the, and the last one is about the, the second coming. Oh. Okay. Clear as a bell. Well, <laughs> it requires some study, doesn't it? Yeah. Thanks, Dana. You did a good job in the time that you got. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's one thing that um, I need to have next time is a clock because I couldn't tell. I didn't know how, how much time I had left. <laughs> you did well. It was 42 minutes. Okay. I, did, I was hoping I hadn't gone way over. Nope. Should I get her here now? I'll mute James. Somebody has a phone call coming in. I, I muted him. <laughs> Dana, this is Christy. Oh, hi. I just want to thank you because you really helped me clarify something that has been um, <coughs> difficult to understand about the difference between the gathering of the armies and the actual battle. And that was gold to me. So thank you. You're very welcome. Yes. Hey.
you guys, if somebody's doing the dishes or whatever, could they be muted? <laughs> All that clanking and banging is distracting. Here's a note from Nancy. Thank you so much, Dana. Jean and I are leaving now. God bless everyone. Till next time. Thank you, Nancy. Last call for any comments or questions. <coughs> you know, Dana, it's Nancy again. Oh, hi. Nancy Moen. Hi. As long as there's a couple minutes and there doesn't seem to be another question, um, why do you think that um, the thousand years, which is described here, is a difficult thing? for some churches or folks to grab onto? Well, uh, just as an aside about the thousand years, we didn't really know that it was a thousand years until uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, well, you, know. you just told us. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I, mean, yeah, I know. We, we, knew, we knew that from the Old Testament prophets that there would be a coming kingdom of God on earth. We did know that. But we didn't know yeah. how long it would be until we get to Revelation in the, the Apostle John. Okay. But anyway, uh, that wasn't your question. Um, your question was, why, why is it so hard for people to accept this? Yeah. Well, if we go clear back to um, Augustine, however, however you want to pronounce it, Augustine or Augustine, uh, in the fourth century, we can see there the beginnings of the the amillennial view of, of scripture oh. and one of the things that that augustine said was that it's just too um too carnal too physical to think that there will be a, a coming physical kingdom on earth so the amillennial view is that when christ returns we go immediately into the eternal state yeah. Totally, totally spirit beings, you know, spirit beings, uh, uh, are new, new bodies. Okay. So, so they couldn't, they could, just couldn't accept the fact that there would be this physical kingdom on earth. And another thing that they didn't like is the idea that it is quote too Jewish, mm. the millennial kingdom. Uh, so their, their view, of course, with, with replacement theology is that God is done with Israel. There's no more role, role for national Israel in the, in the future. Okay. So that's another reason why they don't like this idea of a millennial kingdom on earth. Okay. I wonder what they do with the verses that talk about it then. Well, uh, I... I talked about this in Sunday school. I gave a, um, I think it was a five-part series on, on the Millennial Kingdom. Oh, sorry, Dana. Uh, no, no, it's not your fault. <laughs> uh, but but I, I talked about how they, how they look at these things. Uh, they try to spiritualize them away. Mm -hmm. They try to apply them to the church rather than to Israel. Okay. Uh, they, or, or they just flat ignore them. <laughs> okay. Hey, Dana. Yes. Do we have that taped? 
the five part series that Nancy Mike could refer to or someone else? I believe so. Um, uh, Nancy Moen and uh, Louise, and I think maybe Patty, uh, we talked about this in one of our uh, one of our get-togethers at Perkins, Perkins Restaurant, um, and and we found at least part of them. <laughs> so uh, I'll I'll do you know Christy? Do you know how you can look up things? Look up uh, Sunday school things on on the on the website um like i can't give you a play-by-play -play, but if no. there is a search bar that you can look through is it a sunday school that yes um it, it helps best if you know the dates and i can find that out for you what what dates they were given but yeah i mean if somebody gave me some details if yeah. they can't find it I could try to find it, but I'm not sure if I, I'd be any better at anyone else. I can try to look too, Dana. Yeah, I, I think one one evening at Perkins there, we did find out at least one of them what, what date it was. And so that would give you some idea once you have the date. Okay, or a title, maybe there. The... Yeah. yeah, Nancy, if you find it, share it. Okay. Sure. Thanks. See, when, when uh, Eric was going through the book of Revelation, when he got to chapter 20, the part about the Millennial Kingdom, the, the, the first six verses or so of chapter 20, okay. he had me do a, a presentation on, on the Millennial Kingdom at that point. Ah. If we find out where Eric did that, we could probably find you. Yeah. Thank you. Good questions. Okay, should we um, wrap it up, do you think? I think so. I, I really appreciate everyone that uh, listened, took the time to listen. Thank you, Dana. You did a, did a great job, Dana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dana.